The Gist is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code THEGIST. And buy Sherry's Berries. Fresh berries dipped in chocolate starting at just $19.99 are a great holiday gift. Order now and use the promo code GIST to double your berries for just $10 more. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. Click on the microphone at the top right corner and use the code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, December 14th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. On this show, I talk news, lots of news. In fact, I got a news item. Bo Bergdahl, the subject of the serial season two. We said last week that it was recommended that he not get any jail time. Well, the magistrate who was looking at that rejected it. So he actually does face life in prison if his court-martial does not go well. What does this mean? It means it raises the stakes quite a bit from my critique in season one. I still say this. What was the question with serial season one? Pretty simple. Did Adnan do it? Right. What's the question with season two? Why did Bo do it? So a whodunit has essentially or inherently more appeal to more people than a why done it. But this definitely raises the stakes for serial two. Now, I always talk about news. I sometimes talk about sports, but I haven't really talked about the weather until now. Almost 30 degrees above average. We could be setting records in 20 states. In New York, Channel 7 Eyewitness News sent the Eyewitness News on your side, shame on you, tip off to a ripoff storm tracker team to Union Square, where they interviewed some New Yorkers who are indeed warm. One man said an iced drink simply felt more appropriate than a holiday hot chocolate. Feels like spring in New York. Spring has sprung early, quite early. And when it's this nice, who needs to get away? The sneakers, the shorts, T-shirt underneath. Again, in the middle of December, this is wonderful. All right, here's the thing, people. I know it's December. It's December, right? I can't believe it's December. And Christmas is December, and that's a wintry holiday. But you know what else it's not right now? It is December. Here's what it's not. It's not winter. So the guy saying, spring, spring is one of those shoulder seasons next to winter that's warmer than winter. You know what else is a shoulder season next to winter that's warmer than winter? Fall. And we're in fall. So it's not supposed to be that cold. Now it is unseasonably warm and a lot warmer than it ever used to be, which got me to thinking, all right, it's fall, but we're saying it's December. And this is how people act. Hey, it's summer. Which months of summer? Is it June, July, and August? Right? We think of June, July, and August as summer. We think of December, January, and February as winter. Well, why aren't they? It has to deal with the position of the earth in relation to the sun. But I looked up the statistics. In March, now two-thirds of March is winter, right? The average high in the city where I live, New York, the average high is 47, the average low is 33. In December, two-thirds of which is in fall, the average high is 43, i.e. four degrees lower, and the average low is three degrees lower. Our seasons are idiotic. Why don't we just go and change the months to correlate with what everyone thinks? There is a thing called meteorological winter, and this would be winter. Just make December winter, okay? Now, I know what you're going to do. You're going to say to me, oh, what about the solstice? No one cares about your damn solstice. All right, Skylark, daughter of Gaia? Look, I'm as pro-Wicca as the next guy, the next guy who thinks you're a bunch of fruitcakes, and that's fine. You want to go pray to your goddess? Pray to your goddess. You want to be some guy who reenacts civil wars? Fine. I don't care. 
But don't make your solstice the definition of my winter. See, what I've done there is I've invented a straw man. They kind of exist, Wicca. Maybe they make you feel bad. They're witches. I actually know a few. They're very nice people. But now we can all unite. I got a couple good ideas out there. You know, banning the penny, implanting the guys at Gitmo with some chips, or at least pretending and convincing them you are. And now just let's make winter December, January, February. I really need to run for office. On the spiel today, I talk about people who have or are running for office and if we get the government we deserve. Also later on the show today, a novelist who writes about kind of intimate portraits. One of her books has been made into a Sarah Silverman movie. She's out with a new one. But first, to the hub of the art scene. Yeah, Detroit. 30 Americans is a new show, a new art show that's being held at the Detroit Institute of Arts. And the thing that unites the 30 Americans, aside from all being accomplished artists, is that they're African Americans. And you would not think that this was so unusual, but in fact, in the world of art, shows like this are quite unusual. All the art is drawn from the Rubel family collection. Interesting backstory there. And to take us through it is Mary Lane. She is the chief European art reporter for the Wall Street Journal. She's been coming on the gist, talking about these things. You could see we're pioneering this double sensory version of appreciating art. Hello, Mary. How are you? Hello. I'm well. So you've been to the uh, Detroit show? I have not yet, but I've seen the whole catalog and checklist. Okay. So how did it come about? So essentially the Rubel family, uh, based in Florida, and in the 1960s, they just started collecting any type of art that they thought was new and different. And at that time, you know, that also included white women or, you know, foreign nationals. But one group that they also were collecting were black artists. And, you know, as time progressed uh, and in the early 2000s, they realized that no one was really doing a show of this. And that just seemed kind of weird. And so they decided to put on a show of 30 African-American artists and the ways that they look at race, don't look at race, you know, portray everyday life, deal with racial problems. And it's a, you know, it's a really unusual thing. And I think I was talking to Myrna, who is, you know, Mrs. Rubel, and she was saying that a lot of her white friends tried to persuade her from not doing the show because it was seen as this sort of perhaps potentially awkward type of thing. And, you know, the artists were actually, you know, quite fine with it. But it's really weird because the art world is a place where so much is considered acceptable. You know, you can go to a party and someone's doing cocaine and nobody notices. Or, you know, obviously people have been openly gay and openly sexually liberated in the art world for a long time. And But mm-hmm. then somehow this massive group of people in America and discussing the themes that they find important in their art has been something that people tend to shy away from. So it's- It's not active oppression or we don't want these opinions. It's just this uncomfortableness around the issue. I think, yeah, it's that people are scared. I mean, you know, Ms. Rubel was talking about how a group of kids had been walking around the show and the audio of it is actually available online if you you look at their website. And the kids were very openly talking about uh, one work that is uh, called Duck Duck Noose. And it's uh, by Gary Simmons, and it's a group of nine or ten stools with KKK masks on top and then a, a noose hanging down in the middle. And the idea being just with Duck Duck Goose, just like when you get tapped as the goose, it's just kind of a random thing. You know, the work is talking about the randomness of the way lynchings used to happen. And all of, you know, she was saying that the adults would walk around the show and just be really awkward and not talk about it. And then the kids were actually like, oh, my God, you know, like they were very 
very much talking about how it's bad to become so angry that you just randomly attack someone who's different from you. And yeah. it was a much more constructive discussion. So I think it's not a matter of oppression. It's more that people are, in a way, overcorrecting for perceived you know, racism. And instead of wanting to actually talk about the problems, it's very much like this, this sort of thing where they're just afraid to talk about you know, black sexuality or anything that has to do with somebody not being white. I do think that that, there are good things about that. The the ability of art to kind of grab you or to grab your attention and to make you feel a little uncomfortable. That's a good thing. The bad thing is this art's not selling like some of the other art that everyone can agree is oh so sharking. Uh, I said oh so sharking. I think I was thinking of a formaldehyde shark, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, these artists all have, you know, the ones in the show, they have very solid dealers who really know what they're doing. But it is true that compared to their white counterparts, and even if you look at the black women in the show compared to white women who lag behind white men in terms of the market, the prices are, are really quite low. And, you know, it's it's very weird in the sense that you know you might say, okay, well, people don't really want to buy art that's not about their culture, but that's not true. I mean, the white male collectors have been causing prices of Chinese art that has to do with the Cultural Revolution and capitalism now in China to soar for the past several years. Right. And, yes. you know, you've got someone like Kahindi Wiley, who has done a lot of work of black men and then more recently black women in poses that are like a Velasquez or an old masters, or he's got one in the show called Sleep from 2009 that's a sexualized black man just looking really hot and almost naked. And his price at auction, I mean, his top price at Sotheby's New York from May 2014 is $145,000, which is really low for someone who was born in the 70s and is of that uh, intellectual prestige. So, yeah, it's Right, definitely- or, or you talk about Kara Walker, MacArthur Genius Grant. You know, I've been to a couple of her exhibits. And I only say that not to brag, but say, if I know about her, she must be huge. (laughs) But she doesn't sell like someone who's on the level of those credentials. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing because you have so many, say, Chinese Americans are buying art from China because they say, oh, that's a part of my culture. There's this lag where you don't really have white Americans buying black Americans art because, hello, we're all Americans. This is part of our culture. And, you know, Kara's uh, work, I mean, her top price was set in 2011 and it was $422,000. And like, you know, you said she had the MacArthur grant. She was born in 1969. But in a way, people just still find it really scary to to talk about this work. And Detroit had a piece of hers a few years ago that they actually ended up taking down because they just felt that people weren't ready for this kind of discussion. That was something called The Means to an End, a Shadow Drama in Five Acts. It was a five-panel silhouette of an antebellum plantation scene. You know, let's put this in context where when that situation happened, it was a full 10 years after Tracy Amon had had her work My Bed in the Tate, which was a rumpled bed with soiled sheets and used condoms. And, you know, that's somehow considered okay. But then looking at the actual sexual problems that female slaves had uh, at plantations was somehow considered just 
beyond acceptability. And, you know, you see, I mean, it'll be interesting to see at the end of the show how people look at her work in this piece, which is something called Camptown Ladies, uh, you know, like the Stephen Foster song. And it's a man who is racing, uh, instead of horses, he's racing a black woman and beating her with a carrot, which ends up in her behind at the very end. And, you know, Kara's very open about the fact that she's doing these types of pieces partially, you know, ironically, but then also to get a discussion going about the sexual problems that women had to go through when they were, you know, black and weren't able to have any kind of legal recourse against white men. But it's definitely, I think that it's really good that the show is going on, particularly with everything that's been going on in Ferguson and police rioting. And this is something that black artists have been dealing with for several years. So it's something that is very appropriate for us to be talking about now. But I think that the Rubels and the people putting on the show and me also feel that if we're already talking openly about white sexuality and, you know, gay problems, why is there this last frontier that we haven't dealt with? The name of the show is 30 Americans. It's at the Detroit Institute of Arts through uh, January 2016. So make a swing by Detroit to check it out. Mary Lane is the chief European arts reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Detroit now being subsumed into the European arts beat. Thank you, Mary. (laughs) Thank you. With the holidays almost here, or if you are, like me, somewhat Jewish, having already been here, well, it doesn't matter. You don't have time to go to the post office. Don't think, oh, I'll get the post-Hanukkah Jew exception. There'll be fewer people at the post office because the Jews won't be there. I've looked at the demographic. Not that many Jews. Doesn't really even matter where you live. Whenever you go to the post office, there's always going to be traffic. There's always going to be parking. You probably live somewhere with almost no Jews. So what I'm saying is you got to go to Stamps.com instead. Stamps.com allows you to avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. And everything you do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You can print postage for any letter or any package the instant you need it. And the mail guy picks it up or the mail gal, easy, convenient, and non-gender specific. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use my promo code THEGIST for a special offer. It includes a four-week trial, a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's Stamps.com and enter the gist. Amy Koppelman is a novelist. Her previous works are A Mouthful of Air and I Smile Back. And now she's out with Hesitation Wounds. If the title I Smile Back struck a chord, you're like, wait, wasn't that a movie? It is. It was and is a movie that Amy wrote based on her book. And uh, Sarah Silverman's the star of that. We'll talk of that. We'll talk about the books. We'll talk now. Hello, Amy. Hi. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So this book here is, I thought it was like a poem couple words that came to mind as I was reading it. Gauzy, hazy, gossamer, sort of, I felt I had to penetrate it and kind of tear away a layer or two, a shroud, maybe that's another word. If this was done filmically in any way, I thought of the word filters. So maybe it wouldn't be presented in, you know, the starkest and plainest and easiest to comprehend visually. Maybe it wouldn't be presented in that style. Or is that just me? <laughs> <laughs> you don't think it would be good HD? Yeah, I uh, wonder YouTube about that. Kind of right, thing. right. Big, like a big lit three camera sitcom. Yeah. Boom, laugh track. No. Yeah. Uh, 
I was writing a memory book, and I always think memory is hazy. Yes. So that's good that you felt that way because, you know, when we, we don't see our past clearly. And often if there's sadness, the sadness is a veil over the imagery. So you're right. I was trying to do that. Right. And your book, as you know, your book before this one is I Smile Back. That's now the Sarah Silverman movie. And whatever reviewers say about the movie, it's a little mixed, but they love Sarah Silverman. That makes me so happy. So if they love the character, they kind of love your creation. I'm not saying they love you, but they connect with the most important thing that you were trying to get people to connect with. I mean, some of them hate what the character does, but they all really respect her performance. And that makes me feel so happy because... She believed in me, and she did what she said that she was going to do. And after uh, my partner, Paige, and I finished writing it, and she worked with us, and then she came and she did it, and she, like, really just gave everything to it. So when people like her performance, and I think, like, at least I did what I said. Like, I didn't embarrass her. (laughs) So, like you said, Hesitation Wounds is a hard book, and I Smile Back is a hard book. Bipolar illness, real bipolar illness, is an ugly, devastating illness, and it really destroys the people who love people like this. And and the people who have it, a a lot of times, I mean, they don't want to do the things that they do. So, I mean, it's not like a fun thing. The Friday that it opened, sorry, that it opened in the Angelica, I wasn't going to go see it. And then somebody said to me, like, you're not going to go to the Angelica. So I went down and I waited till it was almost over. And then I went in and then like everybody left the theater, like dead silence after it's over with their heads hung low. And I thought, this is why I wasn't going to go because I knew what I was going to see a bunch of miserable people. But I mean, it gives you stuff to talk about. Yeah, I mean, and so many of the reviews, and I haven't seen the movie, but so many reviews had phrased like, not someone you'd want to spend time with. Well, guess what? That's bipolar illness, isn't yeah. it? I yeah. mean, I, I got 80, the 81st publisher published the book. Eric, he managed, and I think he's still a bartender or manager at a restaurant in Ohio. He paid me seven fifty, I think, for the book. And I felt very guilty actually cashing the check because he had just had a baby and I knew it was tip money that I was taking. Why would you still need a publisher in this day and age? You know, I, most people don't. You know, it's a weird thing because on one hand I go like, I have something to say that's worth taking all this time to say. Years. And Nine years, you said. Then on the yeah. other hand, I go, well, like, but you can't say it unless somebody says it's okay for you to say it. So I think that's always the duality of the voice in your head telling you it's good, it's bad. So then if somebody else believes in it, for me, I need somebody to say give it validation. What did the $750 buy him? What was his print run? What did it get you? Did it get you in stores? Did I think he printed like 5,000 books maybe. And he, I remember it was 2008 and the highlight of everything with I Smile Back was he called me and I answered the cell phone and he told me that we had sold enough books for them to stay in business because it was such a bad time in the economy. And that made, I was right by Times Square. I remember thinking, feeling proud about that. Do you know, so as of this point, his $750 has been money well spent. He's made a good profit on that. Well, now I think I've made up to like $1,200 on the book, like all together. So he must, I have some residuals. (laughs) The hardcover book is Hesitation Wounds, a novel by Amy Koppelman. I Smile Back with Sarah Silverman is still in some theaters. Yes. And it's on video on demand and iTunes. (laughs) She's, she's, She's multimedia. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much. 
So you want to be a good gift giver. Oh, yeah, you do. You have two types of people that you could give a gift to. The person with really specific interests and the person with no discernible interests. Now, you'd think the second one's impossible, and you're right. But I want to talk about the first one. Oh, you got a cousin who loves the Star Wars. You got an aunt who loves the Hummel figurines. You got a nephew who loves box sets. Here's the thing. Everyone knows they love that, and they probably have it already. And my God, do you really want to be part of the Hummel figurine industrial complex? No. You need a gift that they didn't think they'd want, but when they get it, they'll be thrilled to receive it. Are they not human? Have they not taste? Well, even if you don't think they have taste, if you put Sherry's berries in front of them, these sweet, freshly dipped strawberries starting at $19.99, which is a 40% savings, you will find out they do have taste. They are gourmet berries. They are fresh juice and dipped in dark white and milk, chocolatey deliciousness, and then they're sprinkled with decadent toppings like chocolate chips and chopped nuts. Those aren't really decadent. We live in 2015. These are just regular toppings. But they're good. They're delicious. And you can double your berries for $10 more. I'm going to do the math one of these days on what a savings as a percentage of the original that is. But it's crazy. Here's the only way to get the amazing offer. Sherry's Berries starting at $19.99. Visit berries.com, B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com, and click on the microphone in the top right-hand corner and type in GIST to send great berries. Sherry'sBerries.com, click on the microphone, type in GIST, order them today. And now, the spiel, deservedly so. On Meet the Press, Marco Rubio was being interviewed, asked, will you overturn gay marriage? Chuck Todd asked that. Marco Rubio says, yeah, he doesn't like the law. Yeah, but will you work to overturn gay marriage? Well, it's hard to say. But really, it should have been a state's decision the whole time. Why? Marco Rubio says, well, the states come up with some great ideas like this one. Because states have always defined marriage. And that's why some people get married in Las Vegas by an Elvis impersonator. Okay, that is the first time I've heard a prominent Republican cite the freedom to be married by an Elvis impersonator in the let's oppose gay marriage context. That is novel. But there was a good follow-up there, I think, that Chuck Todd didn't take. Like, well, you know, Elvis said a hard-headed woman and a warm-hearted man been the cause of trouble ever since the world began. What, maybe gay marriage can change that, right? He didn't go there. Maybe Chuck Todd, who knows the French horn, doesn't know a lot of Elvis songs, but he allowed... Marco Rubio to wind his way around to the usual Republican talking points. Here he goes. And that, that's why if you want to change the definition of marriage, which is what this argument is about, it's not about discrimination. It is about the definition of a very specific, traditional, and age-old institution. Specific and traditional and age-old. Age-old? You were talking about an Elvis impersonator. Well, Elvis died in 1977, so maybe he's old. But that argument, the state's rights argument, it's always brought up essentially whenever someone doesn't like a law on a federal level but wants to dodge responsibility for that law. It's great. It's great for politicians. Maybe the states can decide that one, right? One part of the state's rights argument is, you know, states know their people better. They're smaller. They're closer to the people. So that would seem to be true. And there are definitely cases where that is true, like Minnesota, bulk of the population, or at least a lot of them, of Scandinavian heritage. They believe in the safety net. If you look at how generous benefits are in Minnesota, a lot more generous than in the Deep South, where they do not believe in that. So that tracks. But then there are a whole lot of rules that are just so random and not at all in keeping with the character of the state. Like, let's look at how to replace a senator. A senator resigns, a senator dies in office. What are the rules? Well, some states allow the governor to appoint the replacement, Other states say it should be done by direct vote. So Vermont says direct vote. 
New Hampshire says governor appoints the wildly disparate states of Vermont and New Hampshire. Wisconsin says put it to an election. Michigan says let the governor appoint. Again, two totally crazy different states, Georgia and Florida, gubernatorial appointment, Mississippi and Alabama, state election. Yeah, they're really close to the people they know. Look at age of consent, right? All across the Deep South, it's 16. But you go a little more north, you Tennessee and Virginia, it's jacked up to 18. But you go further north than that, Maryland and New Jersey, it's back to 16. In New York State, the age of consent is 17. So somewhere in the Holland Tunnel, girls grow up a little earlier. It has nothing to do with being close to the people and crafting rules that are a reflection of the mores of the people. It's just a weird accident of history, and this happens so much more often than it doesn't. I've been thinking about the old claim that people get the government they deserve. So there seems to be some evidence of that. I think about Trump and Marie Le Pen of the uh, far-right party in France, and it's a good it's a good example. They're both good examples because they both seem to have some popularity, but their popularity is capped. And so I was thinking, well, that seems to be about right, that both of these countries have some nationalist, uneducated, ignorant, scared, fearful sentiment, but because they have things like a free press and because they have functional democratic institutions, there is a limit to how far those right-wing candidates can go. You know, maybe it shows that people are, or will in the case of Trump, who won't be elected, I don't think, and Le Pen's party who wasn't, maybe they will get the government they deserve. But then I was looking at Poland and Slovakia, and both of those countries have elected really far right-wing governments. And you know, both of those countries are in the top 20 in the Reporters Without Borders Press Freedom Index, whereas France is 38 and the U.S. is 49. So why do we get the government we deserve, or at least a government that isn't way too ultra right wing, but the uh, Slovakians and the Poles seem not to have avoided that? It doesn't seem to have anything to do with a free press. Think about this in New York City. So New York City is governed well, I think. Our last three mayors, de Blasio, Bloomberg, and Giuliani, I'd rate a B, an A, and a B. All right, you'll quibble, whatever. But Dinkins wasn't that great a mayor. Koch was really good. The historians say he was good. So, you know, we're going back almost 40 years and we've had good, good mayors. And think about the New York State senators. We've had a number of good senators. You get to stay in office for a while. So if you get a good one like Schumer, hey, you might not like him. He does very well by the people of this state. Get a guy like Schumer, get a guy like Javich, get a guy like Moynihan. So we've had Hillary Clinton. We've had a spate of very good senators. Like I said, the good mayors. And so I say to myself, well, we get the government we deserve. New Yorkers are an accomplished people, a smart people. Of course, we're some of the brightest people. We're going to have some of the brightest leaders. And yet, when it comes to state government, oh my God, I will allow this. Hearing some guy from one state talk about how corrupt his state is, it's pretty boring. It's like, let me tell you about my tough fantasy football in the playoffs loss boring. Yeah, well, it's your fault for starting Marietta, Vince Lombardi. But let me just bring it back to the states and say that in the last few weeks, there have been convictions in New York against the once most powerful man in the Assembly and the once most powerful man in the Senate. Sheldon Silver scandal was so boring. This guy, former Speaker of the State Assembly, Sheldon Silver, I mean, he basically merged, took the merger of power and boring and monetized it and weaponized it. So that shouldn't surprise you. He was convicted of influence peddling. But the Senate Majority Leader, Dean Skelis, a little more colorful guy, more of a discernible quid pro quo there. 
Actually got the baritones on the local news pretty riled up. Father and son exiting federal court in grim silence. Their criminal conviction speaking for them. Dean and Adam Skelos now on their way to prison in all likelihood after a jury declared them guilty of what the prosecution called a straight-up shakedown scheme. Straight-up shakedown. At issue, his son's no-pay job. The scion paid off the books. So Skellis wanted to legalize fracking because, you know, fracking's great for the economy. And, you know, yeah, it's true. His son would get a dollar for every barrel of fracking waste. But nah, that wasn't why. And speaking of fracking waste, his son, Adam Skellos, what a fracking waste this kid was. He was described as arrogant and entitled by his supervisor. But really, should we trust the supervisor? Because it was a no-show job. If he had a good lawyer, he'd point that out and make that argument. Anyway, the state government here in New York, it's a complete joke, but what are you going to do about it? They say the people get the government they deserve, but we're the same people who get good government federally, good government in the city of New York. I refuse to blame Schenectady and Rochester for all of the woes of New York State. The New York Times ran an op-ed by a state assemblyman who's on all sorts of ethics committees. He has four recommendations for reforming the state. One was to ban legislators from having outside jobs, even Etsy, on unaddressed. The next was to ban slush funds. I mean, it's called a slush fund. You can't really defend it. The third is to hold hearings, a lot of hearings, because that'll be gripping because hearings usually do the trick. And the last, are you ready for this one? The last of all, this is how we reform the state. You got to get C-SPAN, the New York State version of C-SPAN. That'll do it. You know, C-SPAN, as if C-SPAN has ever been the answer to anything other than what's that weird channel between Reels and FXX? C-SPAN, where you can hear such programming as this. I lost a bet with Congressman Israel. So now, Steve, this song is for you. Meet the Mets, meet the Mets, step right up. So I don't think we get the government we deserve. I think decades or even centuries ago, the rudder was tilted in half a direction one way or the other, and slowly over time, our institutions transformed and snowballed and metastasized, and now C-SPAN's being offered as the answer. To quote one icon in the state's rights argument, we're caught in a trap, and it's one that most voters don't deserve. Town, Mr. Speaker, please tell me my time has expired. <laughs> That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi wonders if we rebrand the seasons, can she just stop the fiction of calling those things summer sweaters when really they're just crappily knitted winter sweaters? Our executive producer Andy Bowers is worried about Indian summer. He's been to India in the summer. It's hot as hell. The gist... We're going to stick to the rebrand the seasons plan, but I may have to rename my level 12 magic user slash zombie hunter something other than Vernal Equinox. Oomperu Deperu Duperu. But first, it's a Monday. That means we play a They Might Be Giants song as part of their Dial a Song initiative. And today's entry, Long White Beard, featuring Robin Goldwasser.
surprising.